Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're very pleased to have James Zug on the show. His new book, The Guardian, the history of South Africa's extraordinary anti-apartheid newspaper, has just appeared from Michigan State University Press. Prior to reading the book, I knew next to nothing about modern South African history, at least any more than the average reader of the average daily paper might know. James has answered a lot of questions for me, and he reminded me of something that I had forgotten, and that is that at mid-century, communists, much maligned today, were on the right side of many issues, one of them being racism. I really enjoyed my discussion with James, and I hope that you enjoy listening to it. Here's the interview. Hi, Jim. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm good. How are things in D.C.? Things are uh, hot, hot and steamy. Hot in D.C. Yeah, well, they're hot and steamy here too. Luckily, there's no rain. The yeah. biblical flood is uh, subsiding now. So, and I didn't have to build an ark or anything like that. I promised last <laughs> week to somebody that I was going to build an ark, and I did not build an ark. So, anyway, we're happy to have Jim Zug on the show today, and his new book, The Guardian: The History of South Africa's Extraordinary Anti-Apartheid Newspaper, has just come out from Michigan State University Press. And, uh, you know, uh, I will just show my cards right now and tell you that I read the book and thought it was absolutely wonderful, and I hope that it finds the readership that it deserves. Um, Let's begin, though, Jim, by having you tell our audience a little bit about yourself. So if you could just give your brief bio, that would be great. Well, my uh, favorite color used to be red, and now it's green. (laughs) Um, I'm still wavering on ice cream, but vanilla, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm, I'm still a vanilla guy. I I grew up in... in, um, uh, Pennsylvania and um, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and uh, uh, went to uh, Dartmouth and uh, that's where I first got interested in in the story of of the Guardian newspaper uh, and I spent uh, three years living in South Africa just oh. after college where I uh, spent a year teaching at a high school uh-huh. uh, <clears throat> African high school and then two years uh, in Cape Town working on the on the Guardian book, mm-hmm. and I uh, got a master's in nonfiction writing from Columbia uh, in the late 90s, and have been uh, a freelance writer historian. Um, uh, ever since then. Well, we should actually talk a little bit about that. Uh, we, we don't have to do it right now, but I know that a lot of the listeners to the podcast um, are interested in anybody who makes a living writing because it's a very <laughs> difficult thing to do. So I, whenever I have somebody on the show who actually makes money that way and puts together a livelihood, I, I always ask them. But tell me this, what um, what took you to South Africa originally? Well, we, we had some family friends there oh, okay. and... Um, my parents have been there. So uh, at Dartmouth, you have to take a semester off. It's a it's a four semester a year uh-huh. system, and so uh, you have to go sophomore summer to Dartmouth. So you have to take a term off. And uh-huh. so I, I uh, connected with some of these uh, friends and and spent three months in uh, South Africa, 
half of that in Cape Town, uh, living with a couple of different families, and I, I worked at a at a, a, a what's called a colored uh, school in mm-hmm. Cape Town for a couple of weeks, and and then I more or less just hitchhiked around the country, mm-hmm. uh, going from friend to friend. Somebody would pass me along, and I just fell in love with the country and its mm-hmm. people and its history, and um, it's just an incredibly beautiful and, and sort of tragic place. So I. Um, came back to Dartmouth uh, passionate about South African history and, mm-hmm. and um, did my uh, rest of my studies sort of around that uh, that story. Uh-huh. Let me ask you what may seem like an aggressive question, but is it meant to be that way? Why? Um why no PhD in history? Why? Why did you just sort of? Well, yeah, it's funny. My wife, my wife, who teaches uh, history uh, in the high school level, uh, we both have always talked about that. And 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 I, um, the the short answer is I sort of feel uh, that I didn't want to get pinned down in one particular area. Um, I, I've written books on 18th century exploration and uh, the history of the game of squash and South Africa. And, uh, I've sort of been able to bounce around and, and follow up my my whims. And, and I always felt, it's not really true, but I've always felt that you know professors really get locked in and, and know all they need to know about one obscure part of, of uh, you know, one little tiny thing, and and, yeah. and and they're not able to kind of have a have a blanket uh, passions on on all different kinds of subjects. So that that's that's one answer. The other answer is I, I was just intellectually lazy and got intimidated <laughs> by having to know about Derrida and Foucault yeah, and does, yeah. and um, uh, the the sort of the theory of of history, which I I'm certainly not as passionate about uh, compared to the actual, you know, the stories of people. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, well, I have, I have to say, um, I don't think you were wrong when you uh, very wisely thought, at a young age, I might add, that professors do get locked into small subjects because right. that does, in fact, happen. And uh, yeah. I know that in my own career, I, um, as we talked about in the pre-interview, mm. I came to know more and more about less and less. I mean, I wrote books that were so ridiculously obscure that um, I don't even think my mother read them. She said she did, but I don't, <laughs> no, I don't think your she mother, did. Your mother's, your mother's supposed to be one of the seven people yeah, who she, read I don't think what she, academics write. She didn't know. I don't think anyone ever read anything that I wrote. Well, maybe they did. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure. But, you know, you're absolutely right. And for those of our listeners that are thinking about going on to get PhDs in history, it, it really is very technical. And they do require you to work on one subject your entire life. You know, right. it's, it's really quite a remarkable thing. I mean, it's funny because my wife, who's a mathematician, when I told her this about historians, just looked at me, as they say in Ireland, you know, she was just gobsmacked. Yep. Because she couldn't believe it, because no mathematician would work their whole life on one subject. Right. But historians right. commonly do this. I mean, if you're, as I was, a Russian historian at the beginning, you're a Russian historian at the end. And that can be tough. It really yep. can. And so I, I applaud you for for um you know taking the leap and it was quite it was quite a white move well, I, move on your you know I, I feel guilty about it a little bit i you know i i've gone to a couple of conferences uh with this book and been amazed how uh how wonderful it is and intellectually stimulating uh, to go to these conferences, and, and, and that you know, my impression was always that uh, academics kind of were squirreled away in their, in their little offices, mm-hmm. and occasionally uh, drifting out to scold their uh, TAs <laughs> for not for not covering their class. But you know, in reality, there's a whole great uh, intellectual ferment that goes on that they get to. Uh, I mean, I was I was loving these panel discussions and in, yeah. the, in these these uh, 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 papers being given, and uh, and I came away. You know, came home thinking, oh, you know, maybe I should have done a PhD. But uh, and I love teaching. I love working with other um, 
uh, uh, people who are interested. But I, I found that the, the, the MFA, and, and, and they're, I think, increasingly popular for the nonfiction mm-hmm. side of it, um, as opposed to going to journalism school, which is, you know, sort of a nine-month uh, grind and, yeah. and, and and not nearly as um, uh, intellectual. And and I really did enjoy uh, my time at Columbia and uh, found it very, very useful, um, uh, uh, both in terms of my writing and just my development as a reader. Um, mm-hmm. So... Uh, it did. It did work out for my my career, as it were, to to to, to just do a, an MFA and not go on to the PhD. But um, yeah, uh, no, I see. I see what you mean, and I you know I, I do think that many people enter history graduate school and think to themselves, well, you know, I just like to read books, and yeah. maybe I'll write a few of them myself. And right. you know, I'm a pretty right. fluent reader and pretty fluent writer, and right. this is what I'll do, and I'll talk to people about history. But in, in fact, it's it's ex- usually it's extraordinarily technical, and yeah, um, right. I don't think people realize that. I well, I, I, when I read that stuff, I can't. I, I don't understand what people are saying. Yeah, well, and, often, you know, yeah, I don't. And so uh, I write uh, it, and I don't understand what I'm writing. So I, <laughs> But I think you know, with with, uh, I, I also felt I, I think my first book is 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 this book, The Guardian, uh, and I I felt uh, at a young age, and and probably not so much today, in my dotage that I I wanted to have an impact and do do something, do a book, do an article that that can change people's lives, and and I didn't feel that sort of being in academia, um, uh, you know, yeah. I do. Well, it's a different, you know, it's a different sort of, um, it's a different sort of game, actually. I mean, I, I know that from my own academic work, I, I think I have contributed something to the narrative of Russian history. Let's put it that way. In other words, right. there are facts that I have established that no one had established before. Right. Right. Uh, you know, but I haven't done a very good job of uh, discussing their broader significance, and I think that in general, academic historians aren't very good at that. But then again, we have people like you to rely on, <laughs> who can take our work and um, make it um, make it. Well, I feel like there's this whole this whole group of of uh, historians, popular historians, who kind of uh, conglomerate and and they take all the work that that academia produces and they and they sort of translate it into English. Yeah, no, I think and, that's right. Yeah. And and you know, McCullough and I mean you just sort of go through all these yeah. people who actually sell books. Um and, 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 and a lot of them, you know, they they just completely, you know, lean on yeah. on the academics and, and so there is this kind of uh, conduit role yeah. that I think popular historians can play. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And also the skills are quite different. I mean, I know that I have many colleagues, not to say that they're bad writers, but don't really know the idiom of popular history very well. And right. They're, they're not right. willing. They're not willing to sort of to, to take the shortcuts that are necessary in order to tell right. a story telegraphically. And and uh, right. I know that it was difficult for me to do when I, I first started doing it. I, I kind of bridled against it. I, I think I've learned how to do it now. But it, it right. is a, it is a different sort of um, project. And and you know right. I think that you know as I said in this book you've negotiated it wonderfully. Um, well, thank you. I, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the book itself. Um, you say that its origins came out of work that you did as an undergraduate. But that was a, I, I was about to say, that was a long time ago. You're an old man. No. Oh, well, <laughs> no. um, I know. I'm, I'm nearing 40. Uh, the, the, the story was I, I spent a, a summer before senior year working with this um, uh, very sort of liberal um, a group in in Berkeley, California. Um, they were liberal even for Berkeley, and they uh, they did uh, work transferring technology and technological skills to uh, Nicaragua to the mm-hmm. Sandinistas, mm-hmm. and they had gotten involved with helping the ANC uh, outfit their offices in Osaka. 
And they started a brand new project right when I got there, which was uh, working with two black-owned and run newspapers, one in Joburg and one in Cape Town. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to connect these newspapers with uh, um, the broader continuum of South African history and, and, and alternative newspapers. And so they asked me to go prove that these papers were sort of connected to that. Mm -hmm. And I kept on running into this one newspaper, or actually it seemed like three or four. It was hard to kind of get a handle on its history because uh, its name kept on changing and people didn't seem to realize it was the same paper. And uh, it seemed very, you know, interesting and important, and nobody would write more than a paragraph on them in these, in these histories of the South African press. And so I went back to Dartmouth and, and wrote my thesis on, on that newspaper, and, and um, which involved mostly just reading all 1,400 uh, issues over, over 26 years of, of when it was published mm -hmm. every week. And, um, and I finished that thesis in May of 1991. Uh, and then uh, the next leg of the story is I was living in South Africa, and uh, of uh, the ar archives of the liberation struggle uh, in Cape Town, this center uh, heard about my thesis, got a copy of it, and asked me to come to Cape Town and talk to them about it, and I did, and they asked me to write, uh, turn it into a book, and mm -hmm. they would publish it. Mm -hmm. And I was 23 and um, had just spent a year teaching, and it had resolved that I was going to become a writer. Mm. And a couple of weeks later, I was offered a book contract. Mm. And so I thought, this is very easy. <laughs> right. um, this, is, this is the way I should do it. Yeah. And that was in December of 1992, <laughs> and the book was published in November of 2007. Uh -huh. So, yeah, right. um, it, uh, and not by those people either. But um, right. so that it, it had an incredibly long uh, um uh, you know, just uh, period, yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, but it did, you know, uh, it, it it did come out. But I, I did work on it. It was sort of my first book that I did write um, uh -huh. in the mid '90s, and, uh -huh. and um, uh -huh. so. So you made numerous trips to South Africa, and you worked in archives there, and you read well, all the newspapers. Yeah, I, no, I, did, I didn't. I, I just moved back there, um, I, and I, and just lived there for two years in Cape Town, uh, and worked at this archives. Uh, helping uh, put it together, but mostly spent uh, time uh, interviewing people around the country mm -hmm. and visiting archives around the country and, and, and in England uh, uh, to um, get the story of this newspaper and, and its um, its staffers. And uh, so I did that for a couple of years and, and wrote uh, you know a brand new draft. Um, and uh, and then one thing uh, and, and another happened with the publishers. But um, so I was there for uh, they always the, do. <laughs> um, so I was there during the transition to, to democracy in 1994, etc. Incredible. Um, yeah, I think the, I, the one thing that I'm always reminded whenever I have to deal with publishers, the, the thing that I always think maybe this is the Midwestern in, in me is that they don't work on Fridays. <laughs> I just there's something wrong with that. I don't. I, they, they can't really be trusted publishers. They don't well, I, I, I had an editor who didn't work on any day. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, it takes weeks off in the summer and then work yeah, on Fridays. What kind of right. what kind of what kind of live employee is that? I don't get it. So anyway. <laughs> Um, why don't we go ahead and talk about uh, the, the yeah. story itself? So, uh, yeah. so um, set the scene and tell us about the people that founded the Guardian. Well, they they were uh, this very idealistic group of trade unionists, mostly white uh, trade unionists, liberals. Uh, a great uh, contingent from the University of Cape Town. Uh, these professors um, who who felt the need to have a, a, a liberal paper. Uh, one that covered uh, organized labor movement in Cape Town and 
were uh, opposing fascism, which was becoming a huge problem mm-hmm. in South Africa um, in, in the late 30s, uh, and, and which ultimately led to the uh, apartheid regime coming into power in 1948. So they were they were right to be worried. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, it was it was focused on Cape Town and uh, on sort of white uh, working class issues mostly. And it evolved in the 1940s into uh, a, a paper allied with the Communist Party of South Africa, uh, which um, was the only non-racial uh, party uh, political movement in the mm-hmm. country, and, and um, the, the sort of backbone of the liberation movement as it is even even today, mm-hmm. and uh, in South Africa, and they um, it kind of uh, segued into being a part of the Communist Party and. Then the party was banned in 1950, and the paper evolved into being the organ of the African National Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the ANC was banned in 1960, and it evolved in, into sort of the organ of the underground ANC and its uh, armed guerrilla wing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then it got uh, it run out of existence in 1963. Mm-hmm. It was banned three times uh, by uh, Pretoria, and the following week it came out every Friday. Following Friday, it would come out with a new, um, a new title, and um, uh, same editors, same distribution network, uh, same editorial policy, same photographers. Everything was exactly the same except for a new name. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, so they they were able to survive these these uh, these bannings, uh, even though they're very disruptive. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was sort of hounded out of existence when they. The apartheid regime decided not to worry about the paper, but to um, uh, house arrest all the people working at the paper mm-hmm. and forbid dozens of people from being involved with the publication of a newspaper. And by 1963, everybody was sort of underground or in exile uh, or in jail, and they couldn't find anybody else to mm-hmm. to put it out uh, to put it out. So they they closed it on their own um, uh, two days before they were. Um, forced to. So. Mm-hmm. What was the uh, political climate like in the 1930s when the paper was founded? Uh, the the sovereign government was sort of a segregationist government um, and uh, uh, relatively benign in comparison to what came in after 1948. Um, and they the paper had sort of friends in the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Minister of Labor was a friend of the paper, etc. There was a great upsurge of interest in the Soviet Union and communism mm-hmm. and a great acceptance of communism after uh, Hitler invaded the Soviet Union in, in June of 41. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the, the Communist Party uh, benefited greatly, and, and so the, the newspaper did. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the 30s, things were... Um, a bit more of a struggle, uh, both for the paper and, and for sort of the, the radical left of South Africa. Mm-hmm. And how was it the case that um, the, the the founders of the paper themselves were they South Africans or were they implant were they were they imports from England or? No, uh, they were all South African except for the the first editor uh, Betty Radford, who's this wonderful tragic uh, persona. She she come out of South Africa in 1931 to visit relatives and stayed on and become a journalist and. Um, she uh, married uh, one of the leading sort of theoreticians in in the radical left, uh, this surgeon in Cape Town, and uh, they honeymooned in in Europe and in uh, Russia. Um, 
and uh, but we're not members of the Communist Party or anything. Um, Honeymooning in Russia in the 30s. Oh yeah, that is that is quite a picture. <laughs> I can only imagine what they they said. So they uh, were, would you call them fellow travelers? Then well, the they were at that they were at that time. I mean, maybe not. They weren't even traveling so much, but they they got that way and they joined the party uh, in 41, uh, just before the invasion. Uh-huh. Um, and. Um, she became a, a, a member of the Cape Town City Council, representing the party. Um, her husband ran for parliament, uh, representing the party, and uh, they they were big hitters, very big hitters in in uh, political circles in in South Africa. Um, and uh, when uh, things got tough after the Second World War, there was a great reaction against uh, the party and against. Um, uh, radical political uh, thinking, uh, in large part because of a, a mine strike up in uh, Joburg, um, and uh, the, the political climate changed um, mm-hmm. overnight. And uh, Betty was arrested um, as part of uh, the backlash of the tri- of the uh, strike, and they basically um, dropped away politically and socially from. From the party and and from the sort of uh, radical left, uh, and eventually went into exile. And um, it was sort of a, a, a tragic end that you know they dropped away completely, and there was sort of bitterness on both sides, um, and um, mm-hmm. uh, sort of a sad. Um, and then they went into exile, and, and her husband eventually worked at uh, the Lancet, uh, the British. Mm-hmm. Um, medical journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the Communist Party in the 1930s, it, it had just been started in South Africa, hadn't it? In no, it started 20s? in, in 19, 1921. It, um, it was the uh, successor of, a, of a, uh, another organization that was founded in 1915, and uh, so it really does date to 1915, uh, but officially was founded in 1921, and, and in the 20s was quite a strong uh, organization. The ANC, which was founded in 1912, um, was a very quiet uh, organization of just a few members um, and not uh, terribly active at all until the 1950s. Uh, and so the ANC was, I mean, the, the party was the one that did the uh, the grunt work, uh, the organizing. They ran night schools and uh, issued newspapers and uh, did the organizing, uh, set up the meetings, um, et cetera, and, 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 you know, continued to do that um uh, through the 90s, but they were they uh, were much more politically uh, active in in the 30s than the, than um, than the ANC. Mm-hmm. But in the initial years of the paper, uh, there wasn't any formal association with the Communist Party. It was only with the no. invasion of the Soviet it, Union that yes, and and that was in part because the party had gone through this incredible sectarian um, uh, purging in the 30s. Uh, basically, the the party leadership that was in favor of uh, working with uh, Africans and, and black South Africans, um, uh, race, uh, they were trumped by the people interested more in class um, and interested in, in, in white South Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the leader of that, of the race group, uh, S.P. Bunting, his son, Brian Bunting, was the editor mm-hmm. of, of uh, The Guardian for its last 15 years. Um, and Brian actually just died um, uh, a week ago. Oh, really? Uh, uh, and I uh, saw him quite a bit when I was in, in Cape Town mm-hmm. just, just earlier this month. But um, so 
there was all this purging, and basically the party ceased to exist anywhere outside of Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was there was no official active party in Cape Town when when the paper was started. And people who who had been communists or were you know fellow travelers, they did their political work in other organizations. Um, and so there there really was no party to speak of until uh, 1939, and, mm-hmm. and it really didn't take off in, in, until the war. So they, they didn't really have to worry about uh, the party because it didn't really exist. So what uh, issues were at the forefront in the 1930s when the paper were, was coming out? Uh, the fascism was a big problem, uh, uh, fighting that amongst uh, conservative Afrikaners. So there was an active fascist party in the 1930s? Yes, oh yeah, a number of them. Um, in, in South Africa, they you know, attacked communist party speak, you know, communist speakers. They the uh, ships of you know refugees they would attack. Mm-hmm. Um, they they uh, uh, so that that was a, a visceral problem, um, and they they were just trying to um, uh, they you know conditions for Africans and and for white poor whites were were, were terrible back then um, as they remained for for uh, for Africans throughout the. Century and even today, and so they, they, you know, that's what people were, were worrying about was housing and and uh, jobs. I mean, you know, they the the there was a big fight I think in 37 or 38 to to uh, cut back on the hours that um, uh, shop assistants had to work in Cape Town. Mm-hmm. They they you know they were sort of working inhumane hours. Um, mm-hmm. So they they tried to get get them to have Friday nights off. I think that was the big big campaign. To and who was the who was the who were the uh, yeah, I, I'm going to have to um, wear my ignorance on my sleeve. Uh, who who's the ruling party in the 1930s? Who was actually governing South Africa? Uh, well, the, the prime minister was Jan Smuts, who was a uh, World War One hero, and um, uh, they were. Uh, uh, I mean, the the sort of simple answer is, is that they were English speaking white South Africans. Um, who who had descended from the UK, uh, immigrants from the UK, uh, as opposed to the Afrikaner, which are sort of a mixture uh, of uh, Dutch and other other people, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they. Um, uh, uh, so that that's the sort of shorthand, but it, it's much more complicated than that. But basically. What, what uh, English-speaking South Africans always have said is, you know, well, we ran the country, and then in '48, the the, the, the Afrikaners took over, and, and we lost control. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's not really the case. That, that, yeah, I was going to say, is that true? I don't think that's. Really yeah, true. In, in in one respect, I mean, I've, most English-speaking South Africans uh, benefited greatly from the apartheid years, and so the, it, it was easier for them to sort of. Wash away their guilt by saying, "Well, you know, we don't support them and we don't vote for them." Right. Um, and um, it would, which was all true. Um, it, 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 it took a couple of elections for the Afrikaners to get a, uh-huh. a majority of the white vote, but uh-huh. um, uh, or the National Party to get a majority. But the um, uh, certainly they were, you know, extremely complicit. Uh-huh, I see. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the. Um ethnic scene in South Africa, and this is something that I knew uh, vaguely but didn't know very much about, the ethnic classification, because you said there were there were, there were various different groups which are, wouldn't be familiar to Americans. Well, there, there, under apartheid, there was four uh, ethnic groups, um, and everybody was classified, and people would switch classifications um, based on, uh, you know, extremely dubious methods of, of determining which class you were in, but there was whites, 
uh, Africans, Indians who uh, mostly descended from um, uh, people who had been brought into the country in the 19th century to work the sugarcane fields mm-hmm. in Natal, and um, and uh, Coloreds, which were a distinct ethnic group that um, uh, came from a mixture of uh, Malay slaves and uh, the offspring of of uh, uh, relationships between Afrikaners and uh, Africans, mm-hmm. um, in addition to the, there were two other uh, uh, groups of, of people living in South Africa when when the Dutch arrived in 1652, mm-hmm. and those groups all, uh, inter, um, uh, interacted as well. And so, anyway, by the 20th century, there was a distinct ethnic group called the Colored People, mm-hmm. um, and are still there today, very much so. Um, and uh, they have different subgroups, but a lot of them are Muslim, um, and a lot of them are uh, uh, almost indistinguishable in many ways from the Afrikaner. They both speak Afrikaans as their um, mother tongue, mm-hmm. and they uh, worship uh, in the same churches and um, have the same passions for rugby and mm-hmm. um, are, are uh, it's very hard to tell the difference between some of them. Um, uh, anyway, so that the colored uh, uh, group, um, very important um, in, in terms of literature and social life and, and, and politically mm-hmm. um, in South Africa, and uh, a lot of them live in, in the Cape, uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in around Cape Town. Mm-hmm. So did these ethnic groups break out along political lines in the 1930s? No. I mean, they, they all had their own political organizations, and uh, one of the interesting things that was happening was that um, the Indian and colored um, groups, uh, especially the Indian groups, um, both in the Transvaal and in Natal, uh, which have been very conservative, uh, much like the ANC, uh, they began to liberalize, and a bunch of young, more militant uh, Indians came into power in those groups, and they led... Um, uh, they very much influenced by Gandhi, who had you know mm-hmm. lived in South Africa for decades, um, and so they became much more radical and started doing uh, mass protests and, and civil disobedience, mm-hmm. uh, which then led uh, to the ANC doing that in the 1950s when the ANC became a mass organization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the colored people were traditionally more conservative. Um, they had a, a large uh, a strain of Trotskyism, mm-hmm. um, uh, which which basically, um, in, in some part, became. Uh, they were just a group that didn't do a lot of political action. Uh, spent a lot of time talking, but but mm-hmm. uh, didn't want to be involved in in, in political uh, work. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, so so the the political situation in South Africa has always been very complicated mm-hmm. uh, with, with these sort of historical. Roots that mm-hmm. um, uh, still d- determine what's going on today uh, mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. I see. So, what position did the uh, founders of the Guardian? What position did they take in the 1930s on racial issues? Were racial issues important at the time to them? Well, they were, but they weren't. You know, uh, they they were still getting their heads wrapped around the idea that um, the the core issue, what was going on in the country, was was not so much a, a class issue but a racial issue that mm-hmm. that the the majority of people couldn't vote back then and, and didn't have basic civil rights mm-hmm. and so they they struggled with that i mean there there was sort of a um, upper class 
feel to the paper and uh, and a sort of white feel to the paper um, those first couple of years where where they really weren't uh, committed to you know national liberation um, mm-hmm. and that certainly evolved in 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 the 40s uh, to where you know by the end of the 40s they were they were um, you know fully committed. Uh, to what the you know ANC was 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 fighting for this this expression national liberation what does it mean exactly? Uh, well, we got it in 1994. Okay, yeah, I see. Okay, uh, for for decades they 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 felt that national liberation would mean some tanks rolling through Pretoria, uh-huh. um, and uh, up until the mid 80s that was that was the preferred method of of uh, of getting uh, getting one man one vote. Uh-huh. One man one vote and also black rule then. Well, that necessarily would be, yeah. Yeah, right. Not, yeah. Not, not necessarily, no, but um, yeah, uh, um, yeah, just just uh, uh, allowing everybody to vote. I mean, some some um, uh, coloreds, uh, many coloreds, um, had uh, voting rights um, uh, up and uh, up until the fifties. Uh, mm-hmm. um, um, so that so uh, they they were always trying to retain those. Right. No, I think. Um, but uh, basically, yeah, the the vast majority of South Africans um, never voted until 1948. And, and even, even when I was just there two weeks ago, uh-huh. people are still, um, you know, the, talking about what it was like to vote, uh, you know, for the first time uh-huh. and, and the incredible uh, scenes uh-huh. at the polling stations, which I saw when I uh, worked at a polling station uh-huh. there. That's amazing. That's really uh, interesting. And, you know, you, you, uh, we take it so much for granted. I mean, I remember... Ever since I came back from South Africa, uh, I I always have voted in every little tiny major small thing. <laughs> yeah. Even though I don't have uh, representation since I live in the district yeah. uh, in Congress, but um, uh, you know you you until you see people waiting you know six or seven hours yeah. in line to, to to cast the, their first vote in their yeah. lives, they're 80 years old. You 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 don't really understand democracy. Yeah, so. yeah. that's a it's, a it's a moving thing to see. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So how did the um how did the editors and writers at the paper negotiate their relationship with um, the Communist Party in the 1940s, specifically with the common term? Because there were some complicated things going on there that, you know, again, one of the things that I found very refreshing about your book is that it reminded me how difficult it was to be a communist in the late 30s and the, mm. in, 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 in the 40s and then, in, and then, of course, in the early 50s. Because yeah. you, you, didn't, you, know, you, you, you didn't know whether to take your orders from the Soviet Union. You didn't know right. whether to go on your own. You didn't want to be a deviationist. You didn't want to be a socialist. You didn't want to Correct. join the liberals. Yeah. You didn't want to be a, you know, a, a unionist. Exactly how did they negotiate that? Well, they uh, the party uh, was uh, completely independent um, from Russia uh, in the 40s, and they um, uh, they were very isolated from from the common turn, you know, which and mm-hmm. then which went out of existence. But they 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 were. South Africa was incredibly isolated back then. I mean, they didn't get television until the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. There was no radio to speak of until the uh, early 60s. Um, they were just, you know, and, and before jet planes and stuff, I mean, it took months to get to mm-hmm. get down there. They they were very isolated, and they, um, there was a, uh, the, the party was, um, people had an had a interest, in, in communism, in Marxist Lenin's thought, but they're very, very much more focused um, uh, 
up, up, up until when everybody went into exile in the early 60s, they were very focused on what was going on in the country and on um, supporting the ANC and, and, and moving towards, um, uh, you know, uh, democracy. And, and certainly class issues were always being brought to the, the front burner and people were saying, oh, yeah, we got it. And then bring brought back to the back burner that, that, that they, they were always aware of, of the fundamental issues on the ground, you know, issues about passes, um, all Africans had to carry a identity book, uh, issues about, uh, you know, rate increases with rent or, or buses, mm-hmm. um, just you know, these sort of core uh, primary issues that were affecting Africans' lives, and mm-hmm. and and um, so being a communist was, uh, uh, I mean, obviously it was a very bizarre thing in the Cold War. Um, in, in the early 40s, it, it was an exciting uh, thing, and and a communist got elected to parliament, and and he was, you know, this sort of great hero of the party uh in in the forties. But but after after uh the mine strike and, and, and the Cold War setting in, um the communism became kind of a catch all for anybody opposing uh, uh the government and when they uh, put the Suppression of Communism Act, uh which became law in nineteen fifty, um, not only was the party uh driven out of existence, but you know, any kind of political opposi- uh, opposition mm-hmm. was you could be called a communist um, even though you might not be at all, um, if you sort of oppose the government, um, and and they use the communist bogey uh, to great effect uh, well until the 80s. Um, so many of my friends who grew up in South Africa, uh, white South Africans, would always, uh, you know, they just like, sort of tell you how how they've been raised to you know the communist bogey um, that these ANC uh, terrorists were going to come in and. Slit mm-hmm. their throats. Uh, so communism was a you know a dirty word, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but but for the and politically it was a great word because it, it just gave people uh, a, a, a structure and a way to be involved politically mm-hmm. on a racial way, uh, which was very unusual. I mean, the ANC didn't even accept non-white me- uh, didn't accept white members until 1969, uh-huh. and couldn't be on their executive committee, which ran the. Association ran the Congress. You couldn't be on that if you were white until 1985. So, uh, so it was the only, it was the only interracial party in South Africa at the time. The party, the Communist Party, was yeah. That's amazing. I, I yeah. had no idea about that. So, yeah. but there were moments at which um, the I, I thought this was really quite fascinating because you know one of the things that and I say this in my write up on the on the on the website. One of the things that I always I, I guess I'm one of those people that does tend to use the broad brush when talking about communists and thinking that it's kind of evil. But the fact of the matter was they were right on the right side of this issue, but this issue. But there were some things that they did, and you point them out bravely, I think, that that they were on the wrong side of certain issues. Like for example, yeah. in '39 they came out against the war. Yeah. And and why did they do that exactly? Well, that was a very complicated uh, problem, and communist parties all over the world uh, struggled with it and came out one one way and then had to reverse their decision. And it was a real uh, conundrum because if you came out um, against the war, you you were also hanging out with the the neo Nazis exactly. um, yeah. uh, in 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 South Africa, the Nazis in South Africa, not yeah. neo Nazis. Yeah. Um, so they 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 had a lot of trouble, and I mean everybody kind of smirked when uh, they joined the war effort, uh, the Allied effort uh, in 1941, uh, almost two years later. You know, all, simply because you know now the Soviet Union, you know. 
the, the great socialist communist country was being attacked, so now mm-hmm. they, could, they, could, they could come out in favor of the war. Right. Um, so it, 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 crea- it, it, it caused a little bit of intellectual gymnastics that, that yeah. um, a lot of people uh, laughed at. But uh, um, so everybody was very relieved when, when yeah, no, exactly. the Soviet got attacked yeah, in a way. Exactly. But uh, it, it was an awkward uh, two-year period. Yeah, I imagine. So there was also some moments at which you know they would write, they would go to the Soviet Union for various reasons. They would come back with these glowing reports. Which, yeah. You know, it's not atypical at all among fellow right. travelers and Communist Party members. Um, did any of them say it publicly or to one another? I suppose you know that things were you know kind of. Things had gone awry in the Soviet Union. Oh yeah, I mean, very few people didn't say that. Uh, Brian Bunting was sort of uh, one of the few people who who didn't. Um, uh, I just wrote an obituary about him. Where that was the sort of turn of the article was about mm-hmm. that. But uh, for um, a lot of people, you know, the moment of disillusionment came one way or another. You know, it came in with Hungary in, in '56. It, you know, it came after Stalin's death. You know, there were these there were these periods where where it, you know became increasingly clear where, what what was going on. But yeah, people did go to the country, to to the Soviet Union, and and were uh, buffaloed. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, it, with hindsight, we go, God, this is crazy. This is you know, by far and away the worst regime of the 20th century mm-hmm. in terms of the number of people directly killed mm-hmm. uh, by it. And yet, you you know, back then, communism for a South African political activist meant, you know, the way to uh, liberate your own country. Yeah. And so uh, they they did have a loyalty to it, but they weren't at nearly as interested in it. And um, uh, you know, they and and some of them did, you know. Um, Write about it, and they and they were squashed down. There was a great intellectual in the 1950s named Lionel Foreman, who worked on the newspaper and uh, was even editor for a while. And um, he had he had lived in the eastern uh, uh, eastern bloc in in the 50s for a couple of years, so he knew more about what was going on. And after mm-hmm. Hungary, he wrote some columns saying this is outrageous. And after the first one was published, the party, uh, which was then underground, said, look, you know, you can't. You can't write another column, and uh, and they were sort of reversed uh, the analysis mm-hmm. on what was going on in Hungary, um, and you know under protest from, from Lionel Foreman. Um, so there were people who who were speaking out, but um, you know it was one of the great intellectual uh, tragedies of the 20th century was this this uh, loyalty towards Russia, uh, which turned out you know now that we know especially. Since the archives have opened in the nineties, yeah. uh, was, was you know was the worst yeah. regime of all. Yeah, I think I think I, I guess I would say we we knew long before the archives opened, but uh, well, that, yeah, that's sort of another but, story. Yeah, but there was you know the absolute proof of it. Yeah, I mean, sure. Robert uh, sure. Uh, Conquest, Conquest yeah, or whatever you know yeah, was right. like this lone voice saying yeah. actually these guys are really bad. Yeah. So I think they they um, you know certainly the communist the South African Communist Party. Struggled mightily in the 80s and you know in the 90s to to come up with uh, its reasons for existing and 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 where its loyalties lay and yeah. certainly that's been a great problem in South Africa since 1994 yeah, yeah, yeah. because South Africa has become a kind of liberal capitalistic state and um, the ANC and the party were very much you know committed to turning it into a uh, a communist uh, economy. Um, they haven't done that at all, 
and many people on the on the left in South Africa today are completely disgruntled mm-hmm. with. Uh, uh, what um, the leadership has done in terms of the economy. Yeah, you bring up the point, uh, I was actually my next point, and that, or my next question, and that is, what was the relationship between the ANC and the Communist Party at the time, and the paper? Because the paper, at sometimes the, 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 uh, the other parts of the press would say, well, the, you know, the Guardian, it is a, or whatever it was called at that time, it is the uh, organ of the ANC, yeah, or it is the right. organ of the party. But they yeah. disavowed that quite a bit, didn't they? Well, they did. I mean, and, it, and it, they did that partly just for practical reasons, so they, they they wouldn't get in trouble when the party or the ANC were, were, was banned. Um, it was sort of a you know, uh, political maneuver. But yeah. it, um, uh, and certainly they were very, you know, very much close to the party, especially, mm-hmm. and, and, and to the ANC. The, uh, the, part, the paper acted as a, as a kind of glue that brought the two uh, entities together. There was great wariness between them. Yeah, um, in 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 the 20s and 30s and 40s, and you know somebody like Nelson Mandela was very much against uh, working with the party uh, in the 40s, but uh, the paper was this was sort of this mechanism to bring them together. It 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 um it helped uh, uh, translate sort of Marxist-Leninist thought into the African idiom, and 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 so that Africans could understand. How this might play out, and what was going on, and, and understand what was actually, you know, the the, the sort of larger issues behind uh, their mm-hmm. way of life and, mm-hmm. and 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 their standard of living. So, uh, and and it also it just brought the people together, um, the the um, the communists, you know, who were selling the paper, and the Africans that they were reporting on, and and their political uh, struggles. So. Uh, a lot of people have said, you know, without the newspaper, the alliance between the two uh, organizations would have never happened, and, mm-hmm. and that probably is true to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did the ANC have its own newspaper? No, really, they didn't. They they uh, they did have one that was uh, very irregularly produced, and it went out of existence before the Guardian was founded. Um, and though they tried a couple of different times, they never were able to get a new one off the ground. Um, and so they've never had their own uh, publication uh. since thirty. So tell us how the uh, Guardian came to be closed down once and for all. Well, they they uh, they kept on sort of uh, uh, they surviving. Changed, yeah, they changed their name about six. I, you know, yeah, they scorecard to kind of keep. I know, I know. I mean, it's it, and and people, you know, are you would never. It, I was the first person, in a way, to say, "Okay, look, this is all one newspaper, and here, here are the dates." Um, uh-huh. when, when you get when you rent the microfilm, you have to rent it from four different places because it's not all, you know, right. uh, cataloged as one one newspaper. But they they were banned in '52, and then in '54, and then in '62. And when they were banned in '62, the government thought, "Aha, we've done it uh, the right way," because before they were banned, the government put in a new law that said anybody starting a newspaper. Um, a new newspaper has to uh, put down a deposit of ten thousand pounds, yeah. which was that's a lot of money, isn't it? Which, it's a lot of money today. <laughs> yeah. Um, let alone back in '62. Yeah. So just before that law became uh, bill became a law, the paper bought um, a couple newspapers and 
started publishing them, but they only would publish five or six uh, copies. It pretended to be a regular newspaper, but they only published the copies that they, they had to send to the various museums and archives in the country that every registered newspaper had to, mm-hmm. had to be sent to. And uh, so when they got banned that third time in 62, they had uh, a newspaper in reserve ready to go mm-hmm. um, and didn't need to pay, pay that deposit. Um, so by then, this really annoyed the apartheid regime, and, and they went after the individuals and, and um, house arrested them and forbade them from working on a paper. And uh, uh, by, by the end of March in 63, the... The, the the entire political situation had had evolved to the extent that there literally was nobody left left with a political uh, knowledge who was not either underground or uh, in exile or in jail. Mm-hmm. So then the editors left or went into exile. Yeah, no, they 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 closed the paper and um, uh, people uh, basically went underground or uh, or fled um, if they hadn't been uh, uh, jailed. Um, and you know, within a couple of months, um, you know, Cape Town, well, the whole country was, you know, transformed, and, and nobody was, nobody was, nobody was doing what they've been doing. Uh, when you say year. when you say transformed, how do you mean? Well, I mean, uh, three days after the paper closed, uh, the 90 days law came into effect, which would meant that the government could uh, uh, imprison you for 90 days without uh, charging you. And they could renew that 90 days indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so within weeks, they were arresting uh, political people in the country and putting them in solitary confinement and torturing them and killing them. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and the first couple of people that they uh, killed in, in detention were, were people related to the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, two of the most incredible uh, books coming out of of South Africa are uh, memoirs of detention, mm-hmm. uh, one by Ruth First and one by Albie Sachs, uh, both of whom worked for the newspaper mm-hmm. uh, for the Guardian. And so they, um, so though they were they were just basically picking up people and jailing them, and other people went into hiding and were working politically underground, uh, and then getting captured. And uh, by uh, 19, the end of 1964, basically all political opposition. Uh, activity inside South Africa uh, had stopped completely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's really. Uh, I mean, it, it, it became, you know, completely a police state. So, how is the uh, Guardian thought of today in South Africa? Is it remembered? Well, no. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, they uh, there was a great tragedy with the end of the paper. Was that one of the laws they passed was that you could not be, uh, you could not possess any back issues of uh-huh. the paper. And if you did, you went to jail. And a number of people were arrested under this law. Um, so it was a serious law. So everybody had to, and they all did this, uh, either throw away, burn, or mail uh, away your copies. Lord have mercy. So, so literally, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't see, you couldn't hold the paper. It was obliterated from, yeah. from memory. And um, so, you know, plus the, the incredible dislocation that went on in the 60s with people going to jail, uh, people being killed, uh, being uh, put off into exile, um, you know, being uh, intimidated, so that um, uh, there was a great silence that fell down, um, and great myths arose about 
uh, things like, you know, what had happened in the 1950s, like the Defiance Campaign or the Congress of the People, these sort of seminal um, activities of the ANC. But, you know, the kind of complexity, these these stories like, oh, my God, we had this incredible newspaper, that all got washed away. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so that people in the 90s, when I was working on this paper, um, uh, unless they'd been politically active, um, knew nothing about it, um, uh, and and even today, you know, when when I was there a couple of weeks ago, people, you know, promoting the book, uh, talking about a lot of old timers who had you know lived in South Africa um, uh, or had been politically active in the 40s and 50s, they they remembered it, uh, but nobody else did. You know, there, there's sort of no mm-hmm. um, historical memory um, beyond uh, the very few. Uh, people who were politically active uh, in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, did, did, did any of the editors of the paper who survived sort of to C94, um, did, like Bunting, were they kind of rehabilitated in any way? Well, uh, Bunting was this great classic story. He uh, went into exile in 63, came back in 91, and um, he, while he was uh, editing the newspaper in 52, he got elected to parliament. Uh, as a as a white representative of um, the African people uh-huh. uh, in the Cape, and, uh, and he served that for a year, and then they kicked him out of Parliament because he had been a communist in the 1940s, mm-hmm. back when it was legal to be a communist. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so uh, they retroactively said, well, you can't be in Parliament if you had been a par- uh, communist. Yeah. So they kicked him out in October of 53. So in May of 1994, and for me, one of these like wonderful moments he was elected again as oh, really? a member of parliament and wow. went back into parliament as the only <laughs> ANC person who had you know already been there uh-huh. and um so that was a great you know moment of you know i told you so yeah. um well, I was thinking, and, he, he's the kind of person that they put on stamps and things right, right. well <laughs> yes but you know it, south africa um i don't know it's very it's uh, they the the um a lot of these kind of second-tier people. I mean, there's been a great glorification of, of uh, Mandela, a deification of Mandela, yeah. and and uh, within and, and around the world within South Africa. And they, um, a lot of these kind of guys who were, you know, completely central. I mean, Brian was on the executive committee of the Communist Party for over 50 years, yeah. and had been a member his entire life, and you know, 88 years. Uh, you know, he basically had. You know, lived the entire length of the party's yeah. history, and um, you know a lot of people didn't know who he was. Yeah. You know, um, the, these a uh, lot of figures have gotten lost in the in the slipstream. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, sounds historically. Like it. So, so tell us a little bit about your book tour. How was that received? Well, it was it was uh, the book's uh, been published in South Africa by a university press, uh-huh. and um, uh, they they have a uh, it's a vastly different sort of scene um, in terms of. Book publishing and, uh-huh. and literary um, literary works, but they they uh, uh, people are very excited about it. I, I've been on the radio and um, uh, there's a, a, a network television network that has a documentary wing, and, and my uh, my book, the, the story of the Guardian, is is a uh, is a subject of a, of the film of the film that they're doing. That's they, terrific. They spent a day interviewing me. That's terrific. Um, so uh, there's there's a tremendous interest in the country about their political past because, uh-huh. as I say, for a lot of people um, of all races, they just weren't allowed to know about it. Um, right. um, and so they uh, 
there is a great interest there, and the interest, you know, obviously is quite a lot less in the states um, uh, because people mm-hmm. people just aren't interested in in in, um, uh, in Africa uh, nearly as much as uh, well uh, they were in the nineties. Try to sell them medieval Russia as I did for many years. That, was, that didn't work out very. It was a bad business plan. It really didn't work out very well for me. Well, you've you've been very very generous with your time, Jim. So we really thank you very very much. And I, I'd like to uh, close uh, the interview with our traditional question: What are you working on now? Well, uh, I'm doing a, a couple different projects. Uh, one is a uh, I'm working uh, on a book about the squash and tennis coach at Trinity College in Hartford, mm-hmm. um, who's this famous guru of of psychology and and, and uh, you know dealing with um, great athletes. And so um, that's a project I've been working on for a long time. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, doing some freelancing and mm-hmm. and uh, Trying to uh, you know stay afloat financially and right. hustling uh, <laughs> along. I know what it's like. Yeah, it's, uh, that's good. That's good. It's a never-ending, uh, never-ending process. So. so, well, I'm sure that many people will listen to this uh, podcast, and your your phone will start to ring, and and the, <laughs> and the contracts will roll in, and maybe even the publishers will start to work on Friday I'm or marketing. in August or something. I don't, yeah, exactly. Well, thank you really, really very much for being on the show. Uh, I, you know, I, I enjoyed the book very much, and I uh, encourage people to go buy it. The book is, again, The Guardian, The History of South Africa's Extraordinary Anti-Apartheid Newspaper, and it's just come out from the uh, from Michigan State University Press here in the United States, and it's also available in South Africa if you happen to be listening from there. Uh, Jim, thanks very much for being on the show. It's been a great pleasure. All right, good enough. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. You've been listening to an interview with James Zug, the author of The Guardian, the history of South Africa's extraordinary anti-apartheid newspaper. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a good week, and I'll talk to you next week.